So I'd like to begin with a bit of an experiment. Uh, I've tried to uh, combine a couple things together just to kind of gauge the response. Uh, essentially what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to create uh, some sort of warm fuzzy in the room. And so uh, let's see if this accomplishes it. Here's what I've done is I've put um, the word best friends on top of two puppies. And um, it's kind of a combination that we're dealing with here, right? Because some of you see best friends and I've just set you up because some of you are sitting in the row of a dear friend and you're grabbing one another's hand or you've caught one another's eye. And so now you've just had a moment, right? You're feeling encouraged. While others of you just simply like the idea of puppies, right? And so even though that's not me, okay? I, I chose this picture for you out of sacrifice for you, okay? Uh, but when you start thinking about friends and, and best friends, things start to get really, really interesting really fast, especially if I went around the room and just asked you, who is your best friend? Man, what an interesting question that would be to answer tonight, right? So what are all the factors? Uh, what are all the variables that go into you choosing a best friend? And now we've come up with all kinds of language, you know, a bestie and BFF and this and that, all kinds of rhetoric to like upscale the simple term, best friends. I was just doing some online research on best friends and I thought I'd share with you one of the many poems that I read on best friends. So if you can, just, um, if there's any tissue in the aisles, feel free to grab some of those. And if someone could uh, chant a little kumbaya in the background, that'd be helpful as well. A friend is like a star that twinkles and glows. Or maybe like the ocean that gently flows. A friend is like gold that you should treasure and take care of forever and ever. A friend is someone you can trust out of a few. A friend is more than one in a million. They are one in a gazillion. And you, my friend, are very special. And so it is official. And I think they thought there that special and official rhyme. I was finding trouble to connect those two words there. But there's all these like poems and phrases to, you know, provide some sort of relational connection. The way relationships connect has drastically changed. Uh, when I was growing up, the way that you connected with a friend is you hung out with them. I don't, I don't know if I'm crazy, um, but I would go to the next door neighbor and I would say, hey, you want to play? And play was the all-inclusive word for like, let's roll. Like, whatever that meant, whether we were going to ride bikes or play baseball or basketball, like you could just say play. Well, so much has changed. My kids, uh, like many of your kids, are growing up now in an era where relationships are, are completely different. I found this stat insane. Look at this. This is just from the first quarter this year, okay? These are all social media growth. Social media, just from the users of January to April 2017, has grown by 110 million worldwide in four months. Because it seems like that, like, okay, so, so now we're at a place where, you know, it's going to start just to catch up. But that's not true. Look at this growth. There are 38 million more internet users just from the first quarter of 2017. The way we're building relationships is completely changing. I think it's had an impact on us. Uh, you guys know my own personal stance on social media. This isn't a teaching or sermon 
on the anti-use of social media, I just want to agree together that this has changed things. I'm not saying yet for the worse or for better, but all of us have a different approach, a different connectivity to people. Uh, next slide. I want to uh, ask it this way. How do you determine if you are one with someone else? What's the determination? Uh, is it because uh, they have uh, subscribed to your definition of friendship? And so innately in the two of you, it's created this deep-rooted, um, almost indescribable connection. Uh, is it because you met randomly and then became uh, Facebook friends, which, uh, by the way, 71%, 71% of internet users are using Facebook worldwide. How crazy is that? 71% worldwide. Uh, Is that your definition of how you determine oneness? For some of you, it's marriage. The definition of oneness happened in marriage. Uh, This room right now is a conglomeration of differing definitions. Uh, My desire tonight is that, by God's word, is that all of us would leave here with one definition. And so I want you to know that going in so that we're all together in the vision for this evening. God, please come. Shape us around one vision of oneness. And so for the next two weeks from Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at this concept of one. Open your Bibles, my friends, to Ephesians chapter 4. The question that I ended you with last week, the statement of truth, is that I don't need to ask you um, if you believe. Your prayer life reveals the answer. I've had more conversations with you guys as my friends about that question in the last week than I have any other question in any other sermon I've ever preached. Uh, I think there's been a resonating with the connection between our prayer life and, and our belief. You can't say that you believe he's able to do far more abundantly than you ask and imagine and never pray. That doesn't make sense. And so just out of this unbelievable prayer, a chapter and prayer verse, now we see Paul all of a sudden get uber practical. He's been building doctrine and theology for three chapters. And now, my friends, it's going to be a slugfest of practicality. Here we go, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's made a very, very clear by several reminders that he's a prisoner of the Lord, but I'm more drawn to the word walk. There's never been a time where walking has mattered more in our culture, ever. Seriously, 50, 60, 70% of you right now are wearing some sort of device that tracks your steps, me included, okay? I check my steps every single night. You'll be curious to know that on Wednesdays, my step count like doubles and triples just because of the movement that's happening up here, okay? So I'm keeping track. But think about it. Like, again, 10, 15 years ago, the concept of walking was just a good way to exercise. And now we've come to this deep-rooted belief that walking matters. And I have certainly subscribed to it, right? Like, if I can get 10,000 steps in a day, there's, there's something that happens in me where I feel like, okay, today I have truly lived, right? Like 10,000 steps 
And there will be times where I'm like at 9,500 and I just begin to circle, you know? I'm just like, we can figure this out. Like before we go to bed, Heidi's into it. It's just like, my kids, Heidi, Heidi goes to Target uh, the other day. And my, my, all my kids come home with what appears to be a Fitbit. And I'm like, honey, what, like, did you spend $500 on Fitbits for our children? Like, what's it? And she's like, no, it was in the $5 section at Target. They think it works, you know, and it's pretty inaccurate. So <laughs> every step counts for about 1000 <laughs> Walking's never mattered more. I, I used to like to walk at the St. Charles High School track. And um, walking in a manner worthy has got me thinking on this image of the track uh, just for a graphic and understanding's sake, I think you guys are familiar with the essence of a track. I, I unfortunately ran track in high school. And I say unfortunately because um, I, was, I was charged with the task of running the 400. I've shared this before here. It's the crazy man's race. It's one lap around. I was nowhere near the fastest. I'm not really sure why my coach had me do it, except as some sort of disciplinary action, right? But it's one lap sprinting around the track. If you take the concept of the track and you begin to think about our walk, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, I think the majority of us believe that this verse is actually creating a graphic that would look like this. Next slide. It would put a grandstand there with everyone watching. And if you could just use your imagination with me and picture in the middle of this track, a 60-foot tall wall. And so what happens is as you walk around the track, the grandstand on my right, there's going to be a point as I move around this track where I'm on the back side of the wall where now no one can see how I'm walking. Uh, I was looking for a picture that actually had some sort of wall in the middle of a track. Uh, come to find out that doesn't exist. And I think there's a reason for that. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So why does it make sense that we would walk differently around people and in front of people than when we do alone? Maybe let me ask it to you this way. Would you say that the way that you walk out your relationship with the Lord looks entirely different, at least at times, when you're in front of people than when you're alone. Uh, the stats don't lie that the majority of uh, sin happens privately, uh, behind closed doors and in darkened rooms and in places where we feel like we'll never ever be caught. Uh, some of the most heinous things that all of you, including myself, have ever done have been in the confines of what we've believed to be loneliness. And so I just want to make sure you understand something tonight as Paul lays out in the beginnings of a very practical teaching. He's commissioning the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy. Next slide. In a manner worthy is embracing not when you are seen by others. In a manner worthy isn't when you're on display. In a manner worthy isn't just publicly in the confines of the gathering of the church so that others would look and say, oh my goodness, look at how they serve. Look at how they love. And then we go home to anger and malice, to deceit, to destruction. That's not 
what we're talking about here. Why? Next slide. Because of this truth. Our walk is always fully exposed. There is never a moment where the Lord is looking upon us with shaded eyes and can't see. And not just see our action, but literally seeing the intentions and the motives of our heart. Our walk is always fully exposed. There's never a wall in the middle of the track which goes to escalate the sacrifice of the Christ that he would, knowing that we're sinners, knowing every thought that we've ever had, knowing every heinous act we've ever done, every sin we've ever struggled with, that he would still die. Uh, so just so we're on the same page, my, my friends, my brothers and sisters, uh, this church that I care for so much, uh, we, can, um, we can all come together and believe that what we're trying to do here is to get everyone to act better in public. For those of you that grew up in the church, this was the classic family going to church story, right? Kids yelling in the back, you know, the boy in the back, me adjusting his clip-on tie. Everyone's yelling at the top of their lungs. And there was something magical about the church parking lot. You pulled in the church parking lot, and all of a sudden everyone was like, zip. And we walked in, you know, like the most perfect family Oh, yes, we weren't, we weren't yelling at each other. In fact, we were just yelling at the top of our lungs to the glory of God, you know? Like, it, Dad really wasn't cursing me. He was, he was cursing his sin. And, you know, he was repenting to the Lord. Like, we're not interested here in fixing the outside and making sure that your walk looks better around one another. Are we together, friends? And so with that as a baseline, now Paul begins to set what this life would look like. He says this in verse two. This walk is going to be with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Remember, he hasn't seen this church in seven years. Of all things he could say, beginning this practical teaching, of all things he could jump into as he's now introduced, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Of all the directions that he could have went, he begins with a discussion and a teaching on relationships. Of all the areas, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, there is one word in this text that is incredible. It's the word maintain. Now, um, I know that there are times where the scripture, like, explodes my mind and my heart. And I've confessed it before, that there are times where I get frustrated when it doesn't collectively do that. And so I am, I am so overwhelmed by this truth. And so I share it, not because I want all of you right now to be as excited as I am, but I at least desire for you to process it with me. Do you know what the word maintain means in the Greek? It means to guard. Now I want you to step back from that truth just for a second. I want to read these verses again, and I want you to hear it through that lens. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to, come on, guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we're beginning this discussion on oneness, 
as we're heading down the road of togetherness and unity, oh my goodness, this word is defining something for us. Next slide. Check this out. Unified in Christ is what we are, not what we are becoming. We are one. We are unified. The work that Christ has done is he has taken all of the brokenness of our sin, all of the brokenness of relationships, and in himself, he has made it one. And I have forever thought, maybe not you, but me, I have forever thought that this oneness was something that we were like, you know, becoming deeper and deeper and deeper, that we were growing in our understanding that maybe one day, Relationally, even here, we would have this sense of oneness. But the truth of the scripture is, we are now in Christ the garters, if you will, the maintainers, we could even say the stewards of oneness. Now, this absolutely changes everything. Because it takes out the identity crisis. It takes out the thing that we feel like and have believed that we're striving for. And all of a sudden, it flips all of the strategy on its head. Next slide, let me show it to you like this. How many of you guys are only children? Okay, only children. Seriously, that's it in the room? Okay, literally? We have like six only, only kids? Well, here's what the ancient uh, American psychologist G. Stanley Hall said. He said, being an only child is a disease in itself. Would you agree with that or no? Would you say that's, I mean, this seems harsh to me, okay? No, it's not. Okay. Well, just for analogy's sake, for the six only children in the room, which I'm really surprised by, I thought that number would be higher. Uh, Here's the image that this is portraying. It's like an only child who's been an only child for 15 years of their life. I mean, they've grown up um, getting all of their parents' attention. When they went to Disney World, I mean, they they got to ride whatever ride they went on. There was no arguing or bickering about which ride was next or who was going to sit in front. Any time that they went out for dinner, guess what? Like, they got to pick. There was no, you know, like birthday parties for someone else where you had to sacrifice and go to Steak and Shake one more time, right? Like, Like, you literally got it all. Imagine being 15 years old. And all of a sudden, your parents uh, come to you and say, "Um, so uh, we wanted to have a little chat with you. Um, Man, God, those crazy things. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Like, they were super old when they were with child. And uh, so you're like, you're starting to lean in a little bit, right? Because you were expecting that, you know, you're just going to have a nice family discussion about God's word. And and all of a sudden, you hear your parents say, well, well, um, it's crazy. Uh, actually, we're going to have, an, you're, you're going to be a big brother and sister. You know, they use language that seem, seemingly would have been used when you were like four or five, right? And they, they hand you a big brother, big sister shirt, right? Like, I'm going to be a big brother. Um, <laughs> it would be as if in that moment you would say, no. I don't want a sibling, not interested. Uh, So you guys can do whatever you want, but that sibling is not going to be my brother or sister at all. It's not going to be a sibling. Maybe maybe it'll be a person in my house. Uh, We may even 
have bedrooms next to one another, but they are not in this family. And as the pregnancy draws on continually, the only child digging their feet in the ground, no. You can say all you want that you are pregnant and that this, a child is gonna be in our family, but, but I'm not interested. This is precisely what we do when we deny the truth of our oneness in Christ. I want to propose to you that the world is seeing us dig our heels, play truth tug of war against something that we are. The scripture says we are one. We have unity in Christ. And we're like the only child saying, no, I don't think so, not true. With this person, maybe. Not with that person, no. In fact, not just that person, this whole segment of people. I'll be one with these people, no problem, Lord Jesus. But as far as this group, they're not part of the family. Are you kidding me? They, they, they look nothing like me. They talk nothing like me. They actually have harmed me in some of the worst ways possible. There is no way that I'm going to be one with them. And in so doing, spitting on the truth of the Scripture. It is no wonder why discord is so insanely powerful. Because all the while, it's taking the truth of the scripture and it's saying we don't want it. Well, that, my friends, to me, is entirely different than pursuing unity. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? When you're guarding something, when you're taking care of it, when you're stewarding it, it looks completely different. Well, thankfully, Paul, next slide, maps it out for us. He said, Here, here's how you're going to guard it. You're going to have humility, and you're going to be gentle. And you're going to guard it with patience. And there's going to be, out of the wellspring of your heart, a bearing with one another in love. There's going to be a desire to maintain this unity. And so next slide, we could say it this way, on the adverse, things that quickly cloud unity would be these things, the adverse, the opposite, pride and harshness and instead of patience, a forceful control. Instead of bearing with one another in love, a harboring of bitterness. This is where we find ourselves when we're not interested in guarding oneness. This is where the body of Christ finds itself when it looks at the beautiful truth of the scripture and says, I actually don't think so, God. We're going to write a new truth. In fact, God, there's going to be certain passages in the scripture that we're just going to turn our back to and add some asterisks to because we're really not interested. But tonight isn't just about learning. Tonight's also about repenting. Let me say it this way, next slide. Are any of these, these specific things, clouding unity in your life right now? Are there any relationships right now in the body of Christ 
that right now your pride, your inability to lay your interests down is creating dissension and discord. And we can say all we want like we do. Come on, over and over in our mind, it's their fault, it's their problem, it's their issue. Is that what Paul is saying at all here? Hey, when you guard it, what you do, best when you guard is you point your finger. That's what you do. That's how you're going to deal with it. So you just keep pointing your finger. Never take ownership. No. Our pride, I'm asking, are there any relationships right now where you have just, you have dug your heels in? So stubborn. I have grown in so much angst because of this and that and this factor and this variable. I'm asking, is there any harshness that has come out of your mouth right now, including with your spouse? I get the opportunity this Sunday to teach on marriage in another community, and I'm overwhelmed again with the truth that my wife first is a daughter of the king and a sister of mine in Christ. And so we often think of our marriages as some sort of island outside of the body of Christ. I'm asking you, is there any harshness in you that's creating discord in your marriage? If she's a sister in Christ, if he's a brother in Christ, connected by the Spirit of God, which we saw in verse 2 or 3, then I'm asking, is there any harshness? One of my biggest issues is a lack of patience. I often pray, God, please give me patience and hurry up, you know, like, <laughs> right? Is the cloud right now being opened in such a way that you can see your desperate need to repent? And finally, maybe most significantly, I'm just asking, are there any of you that are harboring bitterness against a brother or sister in the body of Christ? And maybe, listen, maybe you've tucked it away far enough. Maybe it happened long ago that it doesn't feel as fresh as it did three months ago or four months ago, and you think that you've dealt with it. But right now, just by mentioning it, all of a sudden it's rising back up in you. Uh, tonight I'm not interested in us learning how to guard. I'm interested in us being broken by the Spirit of God and repent and turn from these things that we may steward and guard our unity in the way that God would have us walk. Are we together? We can be stirred by these truths. We can learn principles. But tonight, my friends, is about the brokenness that God's kindness would draw us and lead us to repentance and see that our unity is so unbelievably powerful and connected to our relationship with the Lord. Are there any of these things clouding? It's time to repent. Are you guys ready for verse four to six? Oh my dear goodness. Next slide. This is crazy. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I began to introduce this a little bit last week that there's sometimes where the word is poetic and so you get drawn in by the poetry instead of being drawn in by the truth. What our world has done 
uh, pun intended here with a passage like this, next slide, is it has made this the truth. We are one. We are the world. Come on. We are the children, right? We are, who sang it? Was that, was that MJ? Was that Michael Jackson? Who sang that? It was, a, it was a collective. Okay, yeah. And so what many would say, well, look, we all serve the same God, right? We all worship the same God. Like, we're all headed to the same place. Because we're one, man. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you're in Africa or Asia or Australia or Iceland or New Zealand. Like, we are just one. And what I want to make sure you understand about what we believe here, which is unbelievably scriptural, is this is false. By being a citizen of this planet, it doesn't bring oneness. There isn't some sort of universalistic approach to our belief, my friends. There is one God. Let's look at, next slide, this list of things. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, seven of these things. And what Paul makes clear is it is, it is these things that has separated us and united us and made you a guard of. Well, what we've done is we have actually uh, kind of changed these words a little bit and added some of our own uh, phrases and most of us uh, in our culture believe this, that uh, we're one denomination. And it's only one denomination. And if you're not a part of our denomination, then you're probably not one with us. Oh, it's only one music style, including volume and amount of instruments and the display of this or that. Listen, if you do things differently than us, you're not really one of us, we believe, we would say. One race. We touched on this a couple weeks ago. How dare we ever, ever believe that the gospel is for one race over another. And I continually plead and pray that God will do a work in this body to continue to show us the multicultural and multiracial aspect of even St. Charles within this body. God, cause us to repent of any ways that we have segregated ourselves because the church isn't one race, but we've made it that way often. If you don't have this missional strategy, if you don't talk Christianese in this way, have you guys ever walked in the confines of a gathering of a church and they just, they had so much of their own lingo that you just did not fit in at all as a believer? Like you, you walked in and I mean, right away there was this like strange vocabulary and so you were like, hey, man, how you doing? And you could tell, that's not, saying man here is not going to fly. Uh, okay, brother, nope, also bad, right? Oh, okay, fellow Christian of the Lord Jesus, right? Like you're like trying to find it, right? Like what can I possibly say right now that's going to, you know, make entrance? Okay, it's not one way of talking. Uh, one of the dangers um, that I, I've talked about many, many, many times is this mentality of um, how much we've made of pastors. In the age of uh, listening, in the age of uh, online sermons, uh, one man can almost be heralded as the, the pastor of the world because of how much his teaching is being heard or utilized. And it instantly makes 
a rock star out of a pastor instead of the calling that he's called to, and that is a servant, a shepherd. But we can believe that. Also, one worship expression. All of these things are not what unifies. Next slide, it is this. We're one body. We are. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The beautiful part of being one body is every single one of us are in it in Christ and every single one of us for his glory are significant. I know it's tough for you to believe sometimes. You see how this person's gifts are being used and you're like, that person plays a more vital role in the body of Christ. Disagree, disagree. As each of us embrace what God would have of us in obedience, then we are playing the role that God has called us to play. Listen, one of my favorite, favorite times in my entire life is when I was in the 4th of July parade in Moments, Illinois, as a trash man. My parents didn't know why I was so excited about it. It was awesome. I got to, I got to, I just like wore, you know, all kinds of clothes and I was carrying, I was behind the, the, you know, the trash compactor, the whole parade and I was just carrying it like, I mean, I was owning it. And in that moment, like I just had, and I still remember this profound image in my mind of, listen, every single role in the body of Christ is significant. Why? Because it's Christ who's empowering them. And so some of you who feel disconnected or feel like, well, my part to play is less than theirs, then you're diminishing the work of God. We're not just one body, we're connected in one spirit. Listen, isn't it crazy, crazy, crazy? The same Holy Spirit resides in every single believer in this room. I mean, we've said it so many times here, but it's why it's weird when you go to the grocery store and you're looking at Cheerios. And all of a sudden you, you bend down to look at the, the marvelous Lucky Charms, Right? And you look up and there's someone and you strike up a conversation and you find out that you both, both love Jesus and something happens in the aisle. It's weird, isn't it? It's strange. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit that's in them is in you right up in the cereal aisle. It's why we go to Ecuador and there's this instant connection. We're connected with one spirit. My friends, we have one hope. In the end, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death doesn't have a sting. The enemy won't win. We have one single hope that Christ is all, will win all, will conquer all, and will come back and take us home. We have one hope. It's insane, my friends, that we also have one Lord. We're not worshiping in Christ some different ideological image of religion. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one trust. Together as the body of Christ, trusting in who God is and what God has for us. One baptism, which is this Unity that we have. Uh, we share it every single time we baptize someone. Buried with him in the likeness of his death. Raised to walk a new way of life. Yes, baptism as the image of that. But also just the baptism as the theological term. That we're united with Christ. We have one God and Father, my friends. These are the things that unite us. These are the things that God has called us to guard. Well, next slide. We have some things that we have to wrestle with. Those that are interested in guarding those things. There are some characteristics, there's some truths that those believers abide by. 
The first is this. They trust how God has designed his body, somebody, please. It's God's design. God, why would you save that person? God, why would they express their faith in this way? God, like, why in the world? Like, are you sure? Are you sure about this dude? I mean, God, I knew that dude two years ago. I know the things that he's done. If the child molesters can't come to Christ, who can? If those who have harmed our kids cannot come to Christ, then who can? Can you? Can you present your righteousness to the Lord in a way that looks better than they? Those that are interested in guarding our oneness are completely submissive to God's design of his body. This is your church, not ours, God. So please do what you would do. The kingdom wins. Listen, it's always, always, always hard to send people out. But we have a ton of young folks here, a ton of young folks here. And they get married and they come to this place of discernment. Is this going to be our church? Are we moving this or that? We've had to say goodbye to so many friends. But my friends, when you embrace this truth, the kingdom wins. We're not building this kingdom. We're not interested in Matthias's Lot Church owning the world. We are interested in God being made much of in all things and in all ways. So God help us raise them up and send them out as you would send them. I love the beans and when they went to Ecuador, man, it's tough, but go, the kingdom wins. Secondly, those interested in guarding oneness kill rivalry and replace it with celebration. Uh, so back to walking with the uh, wall up. We're really, really good at celebrating people vocally when in our heart we really want to kill them. Oh, man, I'm really excited that you got that promotion that I should have got six months ago. That's awesome. Can we go out for lunch so that I can hopefully poison your food is what we're thinking. Lord, bring the salmonella in the salt and pepper shaker, right? Make it flow like the water from the river, right? Like all of these thoughts that we've had. Where vocally they see smiles. I'm so excited for you. It's incredible. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine a life where rivalry was done? Listen, I, I was an athlete. I still am in some regards. And rivalry was like what I lived on. And I've asked the Lord many times, like, what, like, what do you, like, you want, you want some sort of rivalry to be shut down? I talked about it last week, like this image of pain and this, you know, old high school uh, rivalry that we had and how much it, it stirred me. But in Christ, if we're one body, then the church down the street and the people that claim Christ, again, Jesus being central, then, then why would we have any sort of contention or rivalry in our heart towards them? Can I tell you a really cool story? There's a church that's being planted here in St. Charles. Really big church. And uh, they're uh, moving out this way. The pastor came to me and he said, hey, Mark, um, man, we just want to let you know that we're, we're planting in St. Charles. 
And I could tell by their reaction they th- that they thought I was, like gonna, I was gonna be upset about that. Instead, I was like, seriously? You guys are planting, and this is awesome, and meaning it. I wasn't just saying the nice answers. I was like, we need more God-fearing, gospel-preaching bodies of Christ in St. Charles. I'm like, let's go. Come on. What are you waiting on? How can we help? They're using this space at times. Uh, They they were so impacted by it, they said, hey, can we get that on video and show the church? I'm like, sure. So they literally, like, came and got me sharing all that, and they played at their worship gathering. They're like, "This, this seems strange, right? But this is beautiful. Why would we have rivalry with other parts of the body of Christ in St. Charles? We want to see St. Charles come to Christ, all of them. And listen, my friends, that's not going to be built around our local expression. It's going to be built around the movement of God. And the moment we submit that, the moment we lay that down, the moment we believe fully that we're not building so Matthias's like kingdom is the moment of freedom. Those interested in guarding unity, kill rivalry. Instead, celebrate. And if that church comes here and they outgrow us, I hope and pray that we're the ones saying praise be to God. Number three, this will be tough. You guys know what the word intolerant means, right? I actually don't, so I'm asking you. But it sounded really heavy. No, I mean it. Zero tolerance. Zero acceptance. Every person who goes through the MV here, they hear about how passionate we are against gossip. Why? Because one gossiping route in this church can kill what we strive so hard for, and that's that every single one of you would be freed to raise your hand and say, our marriage is in distress. I'm struggling with pornography. I have a hidden eating disorder. I'm thinking about committing suicide. You name the struggle. And what a church does when they are intolerant against gossip is they foster a community where people can be open and honest They'll be challenged in their faith and encouraged in love for the glory of God. But a church that gossips, oh, hey, our marriage is struggling. And two days later, you're in another confine and all of a sudden, hey, yeah, I heard your marriage is struggling. And actually, I heard you guys were on the brink of divorce. I I never said we were on the brink of divorce. I just, who, who did you hear that from? And then a day later in the coffee shop, hey, brother, can I, can I pray for you? I heard your wife is leaving you. No, no. like I, I just said we were struggling. How, how did this happen? It's when the church becomes tolerant of it. It's when just a few people are okay as people start to malign others around them. Just a few, it's all it takes. Oh, this makes me feel good. We're back now on the second grade playground. Hey, let's go ahead and talk about others while they're not around because it'll stoke our insecurity. Come on, everyone, let's gather. Oh yeah, so-and-so, and whisper, whisper, whisper. Remember that on the second grade playground? It hasn't stopped, my friends. A body that is interested in guarding oneness is intolerant against gossip. 
uh, you guys have heard this before. The way I long for us to approach it, someone begins to say anything that can be misconstrued as negative about someone else, you instantly stop them and you say, now together we will go and share with them. For anyone who's ever gone through the MV, you've heard me share this. The very first night this ever happened was two weeks. In the beginning of our church plant, someone started to talk about someone. I stopped them. We went and showed up at 10 o'clock at night at someone else's house. They answered the door. He was in a robe. I didn't think people wore robes anymore. He's in a robe. Things are awkward. But I'm like, go ahead, brother. Tell him what you were just starting to tell me. You know what happens from that? Nobody wants to gossip around me. Hey, listen, man, Mark's going to take you and show up at their house and people be wearing robes. Like, like let's just, we can avoid all this. Let's be fearful of gossip. So fearful that we're like, I can't gossip around them. I can't get away with it around them. I'm just, do you guys want that? Is that the kind of church that you want to be a part of? Some local expression that you desire to be a part of? Or would you rather that we just go ahead and let the flames of gossip run rampant? I'm asking you, what do you want? Then let's join in the mission of guarding it. Number four, those interested in guarding oneness, pursue, pursue peace and reconciliation quickly. They run after it. As far as it depends on them, they're going after peace with reckless abandonment. They're seeking reconciliation, that this relationship would lose its harboring of bitterness and that it would be brought near again. That in humility, you would ask for forgiveness. In humility, you would confess your sin. In humility, you would own the fact that you did something wrong. This is pursuing reconciliation. Instead, harbor, harbor, harbor. It's their fault. They don't know how bad it hurt. Those interested in guarding, they chase reconciliation. And they don't stop. They continue to pursue, and this is a whole other teaching on the biblical rhythms of reconciliation, but my friends, it is a chase. And finally, those interested in guarding oneness are known for being loving and gracious. That's it. Oh yeah, have you met so-and-so? Oh yeah, man, I, aren't they like the most, I've never been around someone more loving more gracious. Jesus said, they're going to know you, brothers, by your love. Those interested in guarding are so, so prevalent in loving and extending grace. And instead of playing tug of war with truth or creating their own scripture, you know what happens? Is those interested, they see it as a joy to spend their entire walk with Christ guarding this precious gift of oneness. Now, verse seven adds this. Next slide. The grace, he says, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, next week, we're gonna look more specifically at how grace breaks down in giftings but Paul brings it back in the concept of oneness to the grace of God. And finally, verses 8 to 10, check this out. Therefore it says, quote from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I'll explain all this in a second. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Let me explain this very simply. Jesus, in the incarnation, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. All of a sudden, Jesus leaves heaven and incarnates or comes in flesh and blood to the earth. Listen, he comes all the way down. And what Paul is pointing to, he doesn't just go all the way down and become a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He then ascends as well. Now, these verses seem weird and almost insignificant, but actually, my friends, they have driven the one thing tonight that I long that you walk away with. Next slide. I've been hurt badly. brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of things have been said about me. I have hurt others. Why is it so painful? Why does it hurt so much when someone betrays you? Why is the, the pain of relationships so much deeper than any wound of the flesh? What I've started to discover is that there are two kinds of pain. The first kind of pain that I've experienced and I'm sure you have is the pain of hearing things about me that weren't true. Uh, being told in my face that I was this or that. Specific instances in my life where people were taking swings. And one side of my pain was tremendous insecurity. Why is it so painful? Because I believe them. Why did it hurt so much? Because it sounded so true. And I would love to tell you that every single time someone wronged me, I handled it with grace and mercy, but I would be lying. would try to take it often, but then back in my lonely place, riddled with insecurity. Battling internally. Is what they said really true? Is what they did, is that really what they think about me? Is that, I thought our relationship was stronger than that. 
It's so painful because it wells up all of this insecurity in us. That's one side of the pain. But there's another side of the pain. Why does it hurt so much? Why does dissension and discord and disunity in the brothers and sisters, why does it hurt so much? Next slide. Because of this, oneness was costly. There are times where we're sitting in our insecurity, but my friends, guided by the Holy Spirit, there are times where the pain of what oneness costs overwhelms us as we realize it costs us the Son of God. You see a passage about his dissension and then his incarnation and then his ascension. Sounds like a bunch of doctrinal verbiage. But my friends, it is the truth of what God did to give his church oneness. Not just breaking the hostility of sin and death, but providing a way for his body to be unified in him. And not just one day when he returns, but here and now. Why is it so painful? Because you begin to grieve that. The relationships right now in your life that have disunity, that are lacking peace, that you wish you could go back and and say it differently and do it differently. Even right now, there's something happening in some of you where you realize oneness costs It took Christ willingly sacrificing himself so that we wouldn't spit on truth. So that we wouldn't show ourselves to the world as being the most ununified organization on the face of the planet. Instead, that we would embrace the truth. That we would embrace our identity. That we as the people of God would show the world what God has done. He has made us one. One body. One faith. One hope. One Lord. Tonight, I don't want you to learn and leave here with a better understanding of Scripture. I want you to leave here having been stirred by the truth of God's inerrant word and that his kindness would collectively bring us to repentance. And that we would come and we would pull off a piece of this bread and that we would dip it tonight in one cup, all of us. And that this act tonight would be, God, I desire to guard and attend to and take care of oneness. So much so, God, that tonight I'm gonna call this person. Tonight, I'm gonna set up a meeting 
so that I can repent of the bitterness I've been harboring. And no matter what they say, no matter how angry they are with me, as long as it depends on me, I'm going to lay it down. Rid of harshness. Lay down my pride. Put down my stubbornness. Matthias, my friends who I care about so much, our oneness is who we are. It's time we fully embrace our identity in Christ. His grace has covered every broken relationship. So let's come and share in one cup of hope.